The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Stephen Herod Buner, is a national and international speaker on herbal medicine, emerging diseases, and complex interrelationships and ecosystems. He's the author of many books, including Herbs for Hepatitis in the Liver, The Lost Language of Plants, and Herbal Antivirals. Buner is known as a tireless advocate for the citizen scientist, the amateur naturalist, and community herbalists. And he's here today on Health Watch to talk about the second expanded and updated uh, version of his landmark book, Herbal Antibiotics, Natural Alternatives for Treating Drug-Resistant Bacteria. Welcome to Health Watch, Stephen Buner. Hi, thanks for having me on. So let's start with the situation with antibiotic-resistant diseases. How, how bad of a situation is it? It's something that's reached the, the public consciousness in the last decade or two. And Have we been confronting it in, an, in a good way since then? Uh, no, not even remotely. I mean, the, the thing is, the, the situation's extremely serious. And, you know, for this book, and I've basically been looking at this for over 20 years now, and for this book I, you know, looked at the writings of some of the most or maybe most of the preeminent bacteriologists in the world, and it's completely uniform, their response, and it is that we're facing the complete end of antibiotic effectiveness within our lifetimes. And there's basically no way to stop it, even if they really actively work to create new antibiotics, which, by the way, they aren't doing right now. It's still not going to stop it, basically because of the nature of bacteria, um, something that human beings in the Western world and Western science just didn't really understand. Well, could you talk a little bit more about that? The it was one of the more interesting parts of herbal antibiotics was the way bacteria develop resistance and and share information across bacterial species, for instance. Yeah, I mean, part of the the real root of the problem lies in our sort of Western science orientation, which we've inherited a great deal from the 19th century and continued with it through much of the 20th. And it's really only now that younger generations of scientists know how bad that approach was. But basically, we've all been trained to believe that human beings are the most intelligent organisms on the planet, that we have the largest brain, that we're capable of the greatest tool innovation and development, that we possess language, and all of this other stuff sort of along those lines. And the fact of the matter is that bacteria are tremendously intelligent. They are as intelligent as human beings. Bacterial researchers that have worked for 30, 40, 50 years with them are completely clear on this, that they possess language, that they engage in tool-making that far exceeds our own, that their intelligent level is very sophisticated, that they create cities, that they even create electricity to heat their cities, their cities which are known to us um, by a word that now escapes me as soon as I'm on the air. Um, <laughs> but in any event, they biofilms. <laughs> Thank God That's it came right. back. But in any event, 
The thing is that that assumption is the root of all of our real difficulties here. And so what happens is when bacteria encounter an antibiotic, and you have to understand one of the things that was left out of Western reasoning is that bacteria have been encountering antibiotics for the last 4 billion years. I mean, bacteria as an integrated species or grouping of species is extremely ancient. They're the most ancient life form on the planet. We've been around, let's say, in our current form, 35, 50, 100,000 years, not very long. So bacteria have been encountering antibacterial substances their entire life. Plants continually make them and have for the last anywhere from 150 to 700 million years. So bacteria are really adept at responding. And so when they encounter an antibacterial substance, they immediately begin generating solutions to that. They will literally change their genomic structure so that the uh, antibiotic can't affect them. They'll create mechanisms to pump it out of their body. They'll change their body structure in a way that the antibiotic can no longer affect that part of their cellular structure that it was designed to affect. And what's more, they scientists studying it have found that they actually create solutions to antibiotics we haven't even thought of yet. And then they go around and they share that information with every other bacteria they meet, irrespective of genus or species. And so many researchers have said, well, these basically uh, bacteria are a global superorganism where you touch any one part of it, of that membrane, and the information from that touch goes around the world extremely rapidly. So, you know, the nature of our orientation and also pharmaceuticals themselves. Pharmaceuticals are a single constituent, the, you know, a silver bullet that's designed to kill the bacteria. And so the bacteria, it's much easier for them to develop resistance to that than it is, for instance, to plant antibacterials, which are a lot more complex. Well, you do say in herbal antibiotics, Stephen, that that bacteria don't become resistant to plant medicines. And is that something that has been borne out in research, or is that more based on the the notional sense that they are more complex and more difficult to defend against? Well, it has been borne out. And the thing that you have to understand is that, and it's one of the things left out of our orientation, evolution hasn't stopped. Bacteria and plants are in this co-evolving kind of relationship of extremely long duration. So let's say that when the bacteria want to infect a plant and they then encounter this very sophisticated array of responses, then the bacteria may then begin to alter themselves to be able to infect the plant anyway. But what happens then is that the plant does the same thing back. It analyzes what the bacteria is doing, and then it creates responses to that. So, for instance, the golden seal plant that was harvested 50 years ago has a very different chemical structure than the golden seal plant that's being harvested now. They both may have berberine in it as the active antibacterial substance, but the the complex of hundreds of compounds in there are very unique. So, for instance, berberine was a plant-generated chemical that is very good at killing bacteria. It's extremely strong, but the problem is the bacteria then developed resistance to it, and so they created basically what's called an efflux 
pump inhibitor to pump the antibiotic out of their cellular structure as soon as they encountered it. So the plants created another chemical called 5-HC, and what it does is all it does is it deactivates that efflux pump inhibitor. But you have to look at that's even more complex than that. Berberine is a fairly toxic substance to living organisms, so the plants are making this and creating it in their body and releasing it systemically. So they also create substances which then ameliorate the side effects of the berberine, and they create other substances which are, are synergists that cause all of the other substances to work exponentially much better than they normally would because you get this really tremendous synergistic dynamic. And that whole structure of all of those compounds are constantly evolving, changing, innovating in response to the bacteria that they encounter because the bacteria are always changing and therefore the plants must always change too. So whenever we harvest plants, and especially in a local area, where that disease has shown up, the plants tend to be more responsive to the diseases that emerge in that location than, say, if you're, in, you know, bringing the plant medicine in from China or someplace where that particular bacteria doesn't exist. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author and herbalist Stephen Buner about the second edition of his book, Herbal Antibiotics, Natural Alternatives for Treating Drug-Resistant Bacteria. Stephen, before we start talking about some of the uh, the herbs that you mentioned in the book, you mentioned that we're coming rapidly to the end of having useful antibiotics for uh, for various diseases because of growing resistance. But you also mentioned or t- or alluded to the lack of antibiotics coming into the pipeline as far as research and development goes. Could you just briefly tell us why that's the case? Why we don't see a new generation of antibiotics coming? in the next generation? Well, it was fascinating to me in doing the second edition to find out that some of the leading bacteriologists and epidemiologists in the world stated flat out that the pharmaceutical companies around the world have gotten out of the antibiotic-making business and the research business. And they basically said one major reason, though I think that there's two. And they basically said it is not, you know, financially beneficial enough for them to do it because antibiotics literally are one of the very few pharmaceuticals that the companies make that actually cures disease. All of the others sort of just maintain the body and keep it going so you take them for a lifetime. So they're saying, well, there's really not as much money in it and they're getting out of it. I think it's also because they see the handwriting on the wall. They know it's going to fail. They know they can't keep up. And so they're abandoning that and letting government take it over so that the fault will lie with the governments, not with them, when it finally fails. Well, from an, from an herbal perspective, I really found your introduction fascinating where you are transparent about your reasoning and methodology of which herbs you decided to include and which ones you didn't. And you mentioned two very common herbs that I think a lot of people who use over-the-counter supplements may have used, uh, grapefruit seed extract and garlic, as two that you excluded from the herbal antibiotic uh, addition. Can can you briefly talk about both of those and, and why you wouldn't include them and perhaps why people should seek out other things to use when they're thinking of antibacterial approaches? 
Well, I was looking at treating resistant organisms where somebody's life is really in danger. And so what I wanted to get was the strongest systemic herbs possible. And those were both included in the first edition. And I found after 10 years, they just weren't holding up. Garlic really wasn't potent enough in my experience. It doesn't mean it's not useful, that it can't be effective. You know, all of these plants are good sometimes for some things, but I was trying to find the most potent ones that were the most systemic. I just didn't find garlic and after 20 years of practice to really hold up for that. And grapefruit seed extract is a weird kind of animal. It's a grapefruit is actually highly antibacterial, and that's, you know, not in doubt. The problem is the particular um, extracts that are made, they contain a lot of synthetic chemicals in it, and, you know, that's where a num uh, quite a bit of the activity is coming from. So they weren't really organic. They aren't really sustainable. They aren't really, uh, I mean, replaceable by a home grower. It's some sort of weird kind of thing, and I go into that in depth. And that's why I moved away from those particular ones. And you talk a little bit in herbal antibiotics about the difference between the United States and, and the non-Western world and their approach to herbal research over the past uh, 15 years since your first edition. What is going on in the non-Western world in terms of herbal research that it really isn't happening in, in the United States? We have to understand, I think most people have some cognizance of that in the, this country that the United States, a lot of the research and a lot of stuff that's going on here is controlled by extremely wealthy and powerful corporations. The last thing the pharmaceutical companies want, and they basically control American health care more than they do the health care in any other country on the planet. They don't want herbal medicines to become widely used because it costs them too much money. They like a populace addicted to pharmaceutical drugs for heart problems or liver problems or whatever somebody's trying to treat. In the rest of the world, it's a very different thing, especially when you get into Asia, Africa, and South America. Europe lies somewhere in between. But what they're finding is that even in, in Africa, for instance, even a pill that costs a dollar a day to treat malaria is way too expensive for the populace. So I would find these marvelous research articles where, for instance, in Nigeria, they, they went around to all of the local communities and they said, what do you use for these diseases? And the local herbalists gave them a list. So they, they collected all of the plants after they'd done this with many villages and they took them back to their laboratories and they tested to see which of the plants were strongest for which disease conditions. Then they checked to see you know, what was the most efficient preparation method? Then they checked to see what was the most efficient way to grow them. And then they took the seeds of those plants and they went back to all the villages and said, here, these are the strongest herbs for these conditions. Here's how you grow them. Here's how you prepare them. Now, you don't need the pharmaceutical companies anymore. And they then would say at the end of the article, what a wonderful addition to our national health care system that this plant is. That is so different than here where they're still writing up articles about how echinacea doesn't work or how plants are dangerous. So they don't want, they're not trying to prove whether plants work or not in the rest of the world. They already know they work. They just want to find the most efficient 
best way to do them at the cheapest price so that they can break the pharmaceutical dependence of their countries on these companies. Here, it's exactly the opposite. So, Stephen, what are some of your favorite systemic antibacterial herbs for antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Well, the number one one that I use the most is Cryptolepis sanguinolenta. It's uh, an herb that is indigenous to sort of the central part of Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, and so on. And I found out about it, oh, gee, maybe almost 30 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was looking, first looking at this stuff. And, you know, for malaria is what it's primarily known for, but it turns out that it's a broad-spectrum um, antibacterial herb that is very systemic. And I began using it as more and more people began coming to me saying that they had resistant staph, that the, they'd been on three or four courses of antibiotics, they were about to lose their foot, what could they do? And I've never had it fail in practice for that. It is absolutely tremendously reliable. Um, is there a reason why I, I noticed that, it, particularly in the systemic section, that many of the herbs or, or most of the herbs were actually unfamiliar to American or European uh, herbal pharmacopoeia? Uh, is there a reason why a lot of these herbs are of African origin or or South American origin? Well, I actually think there's there's you know, that's something that gets brought up, and actually it's a little more subtle than that. The two of the herbs that are predominantly African are Cryptolepis and Alcornia, both of which are great systemic antibacterials. And I think part of the reason for the plants in those countries being so potent and so systemic is because so many incredibly uncomfortable diseases come out of Africa. It's a breeding ground for extremely virulent bacterial diseases. Um, but the other ones, really, when you look at um, CETA, um, which is an absolutely fantastic systemic antibacterial, and it's a tremendous adaptogen for the blood. It's a blood tonic. It's absolutely, it absolutely protects red blood cells and regenerates them quite nicely. Um, that's an invasive botanical in the United States along the Gulf Coast, which is where I get most of my stock from, and many more people around the country are growing it, even though it also grows wild in New Jersey for some strange reason. And um, then also Biden's, which is um, also an invasive botanical, which is widespread throughout the United States, is extremely systemic and very, very good. And then Artemisia, um, annual, which I talk about in there, which is also pretty widely spread throughout the United States and Europe. And so these things are available. The problem is nobody had ever really been looking at systemic plants for these kinds of um, bacterial-resistant diseases before. Biden's and CETA both have a tremendously long history of use. But you have to understand, in the United States here, our herbal work really only began again in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and most of the people then were going back to the eclectics work from the 1880s and some of the work of John Christopher and some of the other people that were sort of the intermediaries between that old period and the current time. And so 
we're just now actually getting to the point where we're starting to do sort of original, innovative work again with plants because we've been so much dependent on the old knowledge base and we're just now getting to the point where we can kind of go beyond that. So I think that's part of the reason why they're not well known. It's just that we haven't worked up to sort of our own new innovations yet. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, you also have sections. So you have a, a main section on systemic herbs. But you also have a section on, on local, locally active herbs and synergists and immune herbs. And, and you, you take some time to do an aside on echinacea, which you've recategorized, and also just to discuss the way you feel like it's misconceived as a, an herb in general. Could, could you tell our listeners your thoughts on echinacea and, and its role in, in this? Yeah, echinacea is a great herb if it's used properly, just like uh, the berberine plants, like golden seal, for instance. But part of the problem is a lot of the Americans tend to use echinacea purpurea, and they use it real inappropriately. It's, um, the Native Americans didn't think much of it. They didn't use it much as medicine. The eclectics, who were incredibly smart about herbs as well, didn't use it much. Uh, the Indians thought it was, uh, the Native people, they just thought it was a fairly useless plant. If you compare the root system of purpurea with the other echinaceas, it looks very, very different. And I don't think it's very strong. And gustifolia is what I traditionally use. And we sort of got into that because the Germans kept their herbal tradition alive. But see, they don't even use the root of purpurea. They use the fresh expressed juice of the above-ground plant. So the other thing about echinacea is it's extremely good for stopping colds or even strep throat. It's extremely good for the onset of strep throat. But echinacea is most active. It has to touch the tissue that's affected. Now, when you take it internally, it does stimulate white blood cell production and activity, so it has this immune stimulant effect. But in terms of a direct antiviral or antibacterial, it really needs to touch the affected tissue. And for that, it's absolutely fantastic. So that's why it's really good for infections in the throat. That's why it's really good for any kinds of different wounds. It's really good as a vaginal suppository for correcting um, cervical dysplasia, for instance. And it's just, we just, it's one of those other things where we sort of, took the German approach, but then didn't really examine it closely enough and then went off on our own direction because purpurea was easy to grow and angustifolia is not. And it just really isn't, purpurea is not that good of an herb unless it's prepared the way the Germans do, which virtually nobody does. And, and what are your thoughts, Stephen, on, on whole herbs versus plant extracts that have been standardized to, to specific active ingredients? Now, a few of the, the standardized herbs, like, for instance, milk thistle, um, I think is really great to be standardized because the Silmarillion um, content is enhanced tremendously. And when you're looking at serious liver disease, I think that's a great way to go. Ginkgo is similar in that respect. To really work, it needs to be increased in strength, for instance. But in general, standardization is a really bad idea because most of the people that are getting into that sort of reductive approach don't even really understand what's going on in the plant. I go, I have a new book on uh, Babesia coming out, 
in February, and I go into it in huge detail. And there, because there's so many compounds in the plant that either aren't understood for what they do or they're, they're sort of understood but really not looked at by a lot of the people that are into the standardization stuff, they don't really get, like, for instance, you can standardize gold and silver berberine content, but if it doesn't have the requisite amount of 5-MHC in it, then what happens is it's not going to have enough of the efflux pump inhibitor in it to really help counteract a resistant bacteria. The problem is our knowledge base is just too reductive. It's too thin. It doesn't really understand the complexity of herbal medicines, and most of the people who get into the standardization stuff are, bless their hearts, incredibly simplistic in their thinking. And so we need a much more sophisticated understanding of what the plants do before we start going, well, this is the active constituent and that is not, because it turns out more often than not that that's completely incorrect. And it gets it's an, another level of complexity altogether when we start talking about plant combinations when we're using more than one plant at a time. Yeah, that's why it, it's really an art form. I mean, people want to try to reduce it down to, you know, like you have this, you take that, you have this, you take that. And to a certain extent, that works. I mean, that's a certain legitimate reality, but it, it's only good within a really narrow framework. When you're looking at emerging infections or stealth pathogens like the Lyme group, for instance, are viral infections that are emerging, you have to deal with a much greater level of complexity and sophistication that straight take this for that will not work in many, many instances. So we have to have an understanding of how to combine these. And it's like cooking in a sense. Yeah, you can start off with a, a certain recipe, but it has to be altered considerably, especially when you look at the human being itself, each individual human being is a unique ecological system, and the healer encounters a unique ecological system every time a new patient comes to see them. And even if they have the same disease as another person, the way their body is responding to it and what the disease is doing in their body is different. So you have to alter the protocols that you're using and the only way you can really get there, yes, symptom picture helps, but it's long exposure and intuitive sensing really that helps you get to where that is. And you have to spend a lot of time with the people you're healing too. You can't do it in seven minutes. So Stephen, do you have a website you could point our listeners to? Sure. It's guyanstudies.org, G-A-I-A-N studies.org. Well, it was great having you on Health Watch today. Thanks. It was great fun. Thank you. We were talking today with author and herbalist Stephen Harrod Buner about his book, Herbal Antibiotics, Natural Alternatives for Treating Drug-Resistant Bacteria. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.